Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Well, we've made it past Halloween and Election Day. Thanksgiving isn't too far down the road, and winter is setting in in some parts of the country. The slow season, if you might call it, is setting in across much of the national park system which makes it a good time to take measure of some issues that are confronting both the parks and the National Park Service. To help me out, we've invited Kristen Brengel, the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association, and Mike Murray, the Chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We'll be back in a minute with Kristen and Mike. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. An attitude of gratitude can improve the way you manage your money. Enroll in Credit Score for free with Interior Federal Credit Union's digital banking and get started. Staying on top of your credit has never been easier. Join today to experience the benefits for yourself. Membership is required. Interior Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. All right, we're back today to talk about news and issues across the National Park System and the National Park Service, and we've invited Kristen Brengo from National Parks Conservation Association and Mike Murray from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. Hey, Mike and Kristen, welcome back to The Traveler. Hey, Kurt, good to hear from you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Now, now Kristen, you, you've been on a road tour. I mean, in, in recent weeks, you've been to Great Smoky Mountains. You've gone to the parks in Utah. You've been down to Big Bend National Park and Guadalupe Mountains National Park. I've been to the grocery store and the post office. What were you doing? Many, many things. Um, first of all, we had an excellent board meeting with the NPCA board in the Great Smokies and also got to visit with some of the Park Service staff to talk about improving interpretation, especially on African-American history in Great Smokies. We also heard from the Park Service about its new Park It Forward program to improve visitation in the park. There's, there was an incredible amount of traffic at Great Smokies even during the middle of the week. Then I headed over to Arches with our staff team to talk about visitation issues as well and got to talk with the park staff about the visitor use management plan they're going to be working on or are working on. So that was excellent. And we also, Kurt, um, have been working with Utah State University on some research on visitor preferences so that hopefully we can at some point come back to the traveler and talk about their findings. And then I just spent a week with uh, some enthusiasts in Texas and New Mexico, visiting Big Bend and Carlsbad Caverns and Guadalupe Mountains. And these places are just phenomenal. And for anyone who's listening to this, go. These are some of the greatest parks in the system. And, um, and it was really nice to hear from 
the superintendents down there and the park staff about um, Great, Out Great American Outdoors Act projects, um, other funding through the infrastructure bill, and then of course, visitor management, which I think everyone is sort of grappling with at some level. So Seems it was a great trip and yeah. really great park service staff uh, that are trying to figure things out. So, so Mike, have you been out on the road or do you have envy like I do? Well, I went to the uh, 45th Ranger Rendezvous of the Association of National Park Rangers about a week and a half ago. Other than that, I'm just hanging out here in Maine and keeping busy and enjoying the late fall days that we're still having here. Yeah, well, that was a long jaunt going from Maine to Tucson, Arizona. Um, I don't envy you with the state of airfare and uh, air travel these days. Uh, you know, I made my plan six months in advance, so it was not as bad as it could be, I guess. But it, it was worth it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. No, they're always a, a fun time. I've got to try and get more of those on my calendar. You know, air travel, air tours. Um, the National Park Service is um, slowly bringing forward some air tour management plans. And, um, you know, I've looked at the plans and I'm kind of curious about There, there seems to be a lack of environmental reviews on how these plans might affect um, the parks, the visitation in the parks, the wildlife in the parks, the visitor experience in the parks. And the, the Park Service um, has been slow um, to answer my questions. In fact, they haven't answered my questions yet. Um, I sent questions to the parks in Utah in mid-October, and um, they shipped them off to the Intermountain region in Denver, which shipped them off to the Washington office, and I have yet to hear anything from them. I'd be curious about your thoughts. Kristen, I know you've followed the efforts to pass air tour management plans for decades now, I guess. Um, what's your sense on what's going on? Yeah, and I did, I used to sit on the commission, the congressionally chartered commission, affectionately called the NPOG. On one hand, I'm really glad that the Park Service and FAA are moving air tours forward or air tour plans forward because not really regulating this use is unacceptable and Congress wanted them to act in 2000 and it's taken 20 years to get anything done um, just because the agencies just could not cooperate, specifically the FAA, not really the Park Service. Mm -hmm. So getting plans on the record is a very, very good thing. So I wanna start off by saying that. I think your concern is well-founded, Kurt, that they're doing these things called categorical exclusions. Um, and what it does is it moves forward a plan, but it doesn't really move forward an in-depth analysis of the effects of air tours on parks. And so what you get is a just very basic version of how they see the world. So I wish there was more noise information. There are some heat maps in the in the Utah plans specifically about how much noise people will be hearing when they're at Delicate Arch or in uh, on the hiking trails in Bryce. But um, for the level of sophistication that the Park Service has on noise, it's a little disappointing to read these plans and not, not see more input on that. With that said, I personally went in and have met with the Park Service leads on these plans at headquarters. And for Bryce specifically, one of the concerns that I had was that they were allowing all of these routes through the park 
and basically blanketed every hiking trail in Bryce. You could you couldn't avoid an air tour when it was there if you wanted to as a on the ground visitor. And one of the things that they did end up doing in the final plan was reducing the fixed wing aircraft to one route and the helicopters to another route. So at least there's only two routes now. And they're trying to avoid some of the scenic overlooks in the park and campsites. What I was a little disappointed with, especially with Bryce, was that you can see the features in Bryce without hovering over or without being over the park. You could actually be on the outskirts of the park and still see the spires and the hoodoos. And I was a little disappointed that um, one of the routes, I think it's the helicopter route, it actually loops the whole park. And why couldn't they have pushed that more further out on the east side of the park so it didn't have to be directly over the park twice? You know, yeah, I'm sure you you're you're well familiar with um, Bryce, Kristen. It's a very narrow park. I mean, and and to what you're saying about the the air tours, you know, circling the park. I don't know how else they would do it unless they banned air tours. And and that's one of the interesting things um, that there was um, a, a no action alternative or a, a ban um, air tours in the parks option considered, or it doesn't seem to be. Mike, what, what's the coalition think about this approach to air tour management? Uh, we have serious concerns about the process. Uh, we've commented on every proposed air tour management plan that's come out. I personally was involved in all those comments. So I've researched it heavily, looked at every one of them. Having been involved in some very complicated planning processes when I worked for the park service, it's inexplicable to me why the Park Service is not doing a better job on the NEPA analysis. Uh, I don't know the exact number, the first 16 or 18 plans that came out only presented the provisions, the, the plan itself, there was no consideration of alternatives, there was no uh, analysis of the impacts of those alternatives. Um, they deferred on putting out any kind of NEPA document until the decision was made. And the four most recent plans, they put out planning newsletters. They intend to do an environmental assessment, which provides analysis of alternatives, analysis of impacts, lets the public comment on that kind of stuff. So I find it kind of bitterly ironic, to be honest, that as a few of these final air tour management plans have been issued, arches, canyon lands, et cetera, again, when they were presented to the public, it was just a 15 page plan of these are the provisions, no alternatives, no analysis issued along with these final plans, which are largely unchanged. There might be slight improvements in them, but based on public comment, they've issued records of decision or decision files, decision documents that are over 200 pages long that include all kinds of scientific literature review, fairly sophisticated sound contour maps, all these kinds of things that could easily have been disclosed to the public and let the public comment on in an environmental assessment. Instead, they were withheld and issued after the decision was made. And I find that personally unacceptable, having worked for the service and dealt with some very challenging and controversial issues. And, you know, I'm sure it's on the radar screen of peer 
public employees for environmental responsibility. They're the folks that carried forth the litigation that actually compelled the Park Service and FAA to finally um, move forward with some kind of planning process. So, you know, in my mind, we've done what we can to raise attention to what we believe are shortcomings in the planning process. And it's probably a matter that's gonna be brought up in the, in the litigation. There's, you know, ongoing periodic status reports, et cetera. So we're not involved with that directly. So I can't tell you how that's gonna work, but um, I, I guess our group is basically gonna wait and see and sort of leave it up to the court to resolve the issue of whether NEPA has been adequate or not. But in our view, it has not. Yeah, and what's what's really a head scratcher when you get beyond all, all the lack of environmental studies and, and potential impacts, Glacier National Park, uh, the staff there in developing their air tour management plan basically says that overflights harm the visitor experience and their plan calls for all commercial air tours to be phased out by the end of 2029. In, in the plan, they note that a major complaint that the park has received from visitors is the intrusions that overflights have on opportunities for solitude and hearing natural sounds and views without aircraft within the park. And I guess what I'm wondering about is if, if Glacier can come to that conclusion, why can't these other parks come to the same conclusion? Are we going to have a situation where no matter what the issue is, each park comes up with its own decision on what's good for the visitor experience and what's not good for the visitor experience. And so you're going to have a, a amalgamation of different experiences as you cross the national park system. Yeah, I think it's, I think it was unwise for the park service to do this on a case by case basis in, in that regard, uh, Kurt. I mean, if you're going to a park to have a natural wilderness or sort of a pleasant nature based experience, having these sound intrusions, whether it's one visitor or a hundred visitors or a thousand visitors, it's troubling and you should use the same standard. And I think you're exactly right, Kurt, that, um, you know, the Glacier um, visitors get treated better than those at Bryce and Arches. I mean, that's just a wacky thing for the Park Service to um, put out there. And, and I actually frankly thought there, there are some things that they put in these air tour management plans in the records of decision that are just hugely problematic. Like they're sort of parsing wilderness that's designated by Congress with recommended wilderness and just basically saying, oh, because it's recommended wilderness, people can put up with the noise. And that's not the Park Service's standard by any means. And that's not their policy, is it? And ARCHA specifically in their enabling legislation and in their general management plan too says that people are seeking a solitude experience and that's one of their desired conditions of the park. The other thing I wanted to point out that was strange in the Bryce document is that they say that they did no vibrational analysis. Now we know from Canyon de Chez that the helicopters, that the, the propellers could potentially damage some of the cultural features in the, um, in the park. And I thought it was fascinating that they did no vibrational analysis at Bryce, and yet they prohibit hovering. And so they know that there could be a problem, but there's no precautionary principle here. There's no 
let's just protect it and push the air tours outside so they don't get near these incredible geologic features in the park. Let's let it continue, but just don't hover over it. And I think that's where the Park Service can really get into trouble with these plans is that they don't actually even make, I'm not a geologist, but they don't make logical sense in terms of you're saying you didn't bother with the study, but you're going to, you're going to require the helicopters and fixed wing aircraft to, to not hover. And so, but then they don't in arches, they do not have a prohibition on hovering, which they would, and several flights go right over delicate, for instance. And it's, it's just the disparity of what they're doing. And it is just, I think, very, very wacky. And they're going to get caught up in all of this because they didn't take a more protective approach, I think. And I think yeah, Mike I, is right that I think it's just becoming painfully obvious that they're using different solitude and wilderness standards in different parks. They're not taking care of the geologic features in some parks, but others they're trying to. You know, I wish they did a, a better job. And I also wanted to say, to Mike's point, the law requires only one public comment period. And I think that's so unfair to the public that they didn't have access to this information that the Park Service clearly had when they did the public comment period. They, they gave the public almost nothing to comment on, including us, um, and then waited to release all this information later, even though they had it on hand. I think that's very troubling. Yeah, yeah. You know, as far as your your comment about vibrational studies, a, a couple of years ago, um, I talked to the staff at Montezuma Castle National Monument in Arizona, and they had the exact same concerns, and, and they had an instance where uh, a helicopter hovered, I think, within 100 feet, if not closer, to the, the ruins there, and they were really concerned about what that vibration would do. Mike, you were a, a superintendent um, for a long time in the National Park Service. What do you think about one one size fits all? Uh, you know, should should Washington be telling the parks that you know the the glacier conclusion was absolutely right? This is not um, suitable for an enjoyable visitor experience, and so we're going to ban them all across the park system. Or should individual parks have that that ability to decide what's best for their park? I think it's not an either or situation. There needs to be kind of give and take. Uh, when there's multiple similar plans being developed under the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, uh, you can do what's called a programmatic environmental impact statement. In other words, at an in-depth but somewhat general level, study all the adverse impacts of whatever the proposed activity is, and then all parks that need an air tour management plan can utilize that as part of their impact analysis. But I, I do think each park may have its own unique situation. Something that's a bit troubling to me is uh, two of our executive council members are recently retired superintendents from air tour parks. And, and they're just, I'm not, not gonna name names, but uh, when I asked them about their experience as a superintendent, working on the air tour management plan, it became clear they didn't have that much say in it. They were given a formulaic plan and very little time to look at it and respond to it and propose local adaptations based on their local knowledge and expertise. So I don't think somebody sitting in an office and 
Fort Collins or Denver or wherever they are, you know, can have good firsthand knowledge of what the impacts of a specific air tour route may have at a particular park. You need that local input to evaluate that. The local park's not gonna have the technical expertise to do the, all the ambient sound monitoring measurements, the technical research of possible impacts, et cetera, et cetera. So there has to be consistent guidance, I think, from uh, a technical office or technical expertise provided, but then local knowledge of the actual impacts. You know, I can sit here and look at a map of proposed air tour management plan for Badlands National Park. And I can see that, holy cow, all the routes circle over this one small area of the park, which according to Mr. Google is the most popular hiking trails, the, most, the visitor center, you know, the most heavily visited part of the park. So I can, you know, recognize that, gee, that doesn't look like it's a good plan there to put all the air tour routes over the most popular area in the park. But I don't have that firsthand knowledge of being on the ground there and hearing it or seeing it, et cetera. So um, anyway, it's a good question, but I think it has to be a mixture, a blend, a compromise uh, between local knowledge from the park level and technical expertise from some, you know, central office level. Yeah. I'm curious, um, have either of you been able to talk to Director Chuck Sams um, to get his viewpoints on this? I mean, we, we've sent some questions to Washington and we haven't heard back. I'm just curious if he's comfortable with how, how these plans are being executed. Um, I have no knowledge of that. We haven't talked to him about it. No, I've just talked to the um, leads in the natural resource um, program that are the folks who are actually writing all the plans. And um, I think they feel pretty good about where things are headed right now. I think they're very focused on the reduction of air tours and not allowing the ceiling to be too high on them. I feel like the Park Service folks are just generally happy to get these plans done and happy to lock in um, a number that they think is more protective. But I think from our perspective, it's a missed opportunity to actually manage to the resources and the values and the visitor experience. And that's where the Park Service gets into trouble by allowing these damaging uses in parks and not putting together plans that are actually the most protective that they could put in place. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could we could spend the entire show talking about the air tour management plans and good, bad, and indifferent. Um, but there are some other topics uh, I want to get into. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Everglades Foundation the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. 
As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. All right, we're back with Kristen Brengo from the National Parks Conservation Association and Mike Murray from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. There seems to be a lot going on with the Great American Outdoors Act. There's a lot of money going out across the national park system to parks large and small. At least that's what it seems like to me, and it seems like there's a lot of good projects underway. Do you guys have a sense for that? I just pulled out the list so I could refer to it. <laughs> but there are some great projects happening right now. I think some of my favorites are fixing the towpath at Cuyahoga, which is, you know, wonderful. And I think many of us have utilized those trails for biking and walking. And so seeing that improved will be great. The other uh, project I really uh, like is the Saratoga battlefield in right. New York. And they're going to not only fix the trails and make them more accessible to people, but they're also going to improve the waysides that are hopelessly outdated. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, when Mike and I were lobbying the administration to really look at not just the big projects, but also the medium-sized parks and the smaller parks, I think this list is more um has, has a more of a variety of projects that folks were really hoping for. We all want Yellowstone's Loop Road to be fixed. We want the Grand Canyon's water system fixed. We want those big projects to get done. We know the George Washington Parkway is a disaster and it needs to be fixed. I, I drive on it myself in Virginia, but I think I was just at uh, Big Bend and this really, you know, old lodge building is going to get fixed as a result of this money and it's a good variety of projects and i think well, i think they're going to replace the lodge aren't they uh, yeah they're going to replace it but um you know that's a heavily used um uh lodge and so it'll be nice to have um a better one and so yeah i think these projects are wonderful i think it's inspiring to see the visitor experience improved in these parks and and hopefully um, as the Park Service continues to do work on these projects, they'll make sure that the materials will last longer and, you know, just really think ahead to uh, making the life cycle of the projects last. So I, I think it's wonderful. And quite frankly, Kurt, you know, after seeing the success of, of some of these projects move forward, we really need to tack on some extra years to the um, bill because clearly five years is not enough funding for um, fixing these parks. And so uh, we're hoping that Congress will actually reauthorize the bill for a few more years so we can get more done. Yeah, um, my thoughts is, I, I guess from my experience, I was in park management before that in visitor and resource protection, but certainly around uh, major construction 
planning and implementation. For the Park Service to implement a construction program of the scale is extremely challenging. And um, I personally think they've done an incredible job doing so. Uh, I, I know our group and other groups were concerned the first couple of years in which it just seemed like big parks with really big projects were getting all the money. Right. But, you know, from a project planning and efficiency thing, that was maybe the only practical choice the Park Service had to get started, to get money obligated. And, and they've evolved. They've transitioned to having many more projects at smaller and medium-sized parks. Uh, they've developed these, they call them maintenance action teams. So some projects that can be done kind of by a work crew basis. Uh, they have these centralized work crews that can do projects at multiple parks. And so that's, a, that's an efficient way to get the work done for more projects in more places rather than trying to contract out every single project at every single park. So um, I think they're doing a really incredible job. It's impressive to see how much is getting done in so many good projects and so many parks. And I'm totally in agreement with Kristen that now that this program is up and running, it's clear it's not gonna resolve all the maintenance backlog, but it would be efficient to keep it going for at least a few more years because they're getting so much done. Yeah, they really are. I mean, looking across the, the Traveler pages um, from recent weeks and months, I mean, we've seen uh, $35 million go to uh, strengthen the, the wharf at Alcatraz Island um, at Mammoth Cave National Park. They're rehabilitating uh, some of the underground trails. Um, there's money gone to Morristown National Historical Park in New Jersey, money to Minuteman Historical Park, and it just goes on and on and on, um, which is really good news. But I wonder at the same time, I mean, it also shows how much maintenance backlog there is in the national park system. And so along with extending the run of the Great American Outdoors Act, does it also beg for more annual funding for the park service in its operations plan, construction budget? Absolutely. And when I was at um, Carlsbad, it was clear that whereas they didn't really get great outdoors money or much of it, they were able to use line item construction money for their projects. And so we really, I mean, if anything, I think there's a story here of how much is getting done because the great outdoors money is going to some specific projects that are deferred maintenance, but it's also helping parks do cyclical maintenance and other projects. And in, in some cases they need new construction projects or demolition even. And I think there's a real story here, hopefully that we can tell by next year of how much park service appropriated money has been able to be spread around to fix other things in the parks and give us a real sense of what the needs are when uh, these accounts can be utilized better, you know, in other parks. And, um, and I think trail maintenance crews, especially, I've been hearing from parks that they've been able to fund more trail maintenance throughout the park system. I mean, wouldn't that be just wonderful if one of the side effects of, of the Great Outdoors Bill is that the other construction and maintenance money could be used to improve trails all over the park system and, and that visitor experience. So I think, Kurt, 
you know, once we fix all of these things, um, ma maintaining them very, very well should be a top priority for Congress and, and funding that. Did, did anything ever come of the Conservation Corps proposal? You know, the, the 21st century CCC? Well, it's in the appropriations bill, but at a very low amount. Um, and it, it actually got taken out of the Inflation Reduction Act in the end. But with that said, um, I think, I don't know, Mike, if you were on the call with the Park Service last week, but um, they're utilizing more youth course to do the smaller projects now, which is fantastic. And we wanna to continue to promote that. Um, even if there is no climate core, we have fantastic partners um, in, in all the youth cores. And so having a contract with them to help do some of the trail maintenance is, is wonderful. I could add, I, I would agree that there's been a really positive ripple effect with uh, Great America's Outdoors Act money funding many prominent projects. Uh, there are other deferred maintenance fund sources, line item construction, repair, rehab, repair, rehabilitation that have been around for a long time, you know, regular uh, pieces of the Park Service appropriations. So, you know, I only have anecdotal observations, but what I'm seeing is because more of the bigger projects have been funded by uh, GAOA money, parks that may not be as competitive for these other fund sources are actually getting money there. So a lot more is getting done and it's more than just what's funded by Great America's Outdoors Act. Uh, the, the last thing I wanna say, and this goes back 20 years, uh, I was deputy superintendent at Cape Cod National Seashore. We had a big deferred maintenance project. Park Service Director Fran Manella was visiting and looking at it and we were talking about positive effects of that and all that kind of stuff. And I just kind of blurted out because this has been on my mind for that long that today's <laughs> deferred maintenance projects, if we get them done, that's great. But 20 years from now, they're back on the list unless we have adequate preventive maintenance. So routine maintenance operations, you can call it cyclic maintenance. You know, if you think of it, on the scale of an automobile, if you never change the oil in the car and just wait till you need a brand new an engine replacement, and then you can finally afford to replace the engine, but you don't start changing the oil. It's the same thing with buildings. They need HVAC, regular maintenance of that. They need periodic painting, periodic roof replacement, those kinds of things. So um, I hope we don't, I hope the park service and I hope advocacy groups don't lose sight of the fact that with all this investment, in major rehabilitation, we still need to look at the issue of inadequate operational funding for routine preventive maintenance. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. All right, we're talking today with Mike Murray from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Kristen Bringle, the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for our National Parks Conservation Association about uh, various issues and topics across the national park system. We're gonna take a short break, we'll be right back. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Parks, cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. 
acadianationalpark.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. You know, Mike and Kristen, um, we're seeing all that Great American Outdoors Act money go to pay for projects needed across the national park system. And yet, where do we stand with staffing the National Park Service? And I, I bring that up because at Cumberland Island National Seashore, there's a, a visitor use management plan out for um, public comment right now that basically would double visitation there. Um, and it's, we're not talking thousands and thousands. We're talking roughly from a, a daily average of 300 people to maybe 700 people. But still, we're talking about an increase in visitation there. And um, their staff has um, shrunk um, between 20 and 2021. I believe they've lost 12 positions or so. At Arches National Park, um, as you well know, Kristen, from your recent visit there, getting into the park continues to be a problem. Uh, Rocky Mountain National Park also has that problem during the summer, as does Acadia. And there are other parks with visitation problems. At the same time, there is a shortage of National Park Service staff to deal with not only managing these these issues in terms of getting into the park and whatnot, but actually being on the ground when all these visitors come into the parks. What is the answer? Should the National Park Service continue to work to bring more visitors into the parks, which obviously there's a great interest in, in viewing nature and getting into the national park system, and yet there's a shortage of staff. Should the park service be, be working to bring more people in when it doesn't have the staff to manage them? It's a short, easy question. It's a provocative question from Kurt Repenschek. Um, actually, there, there are multiple questions inside your question, but um, so on staffing, and this is not a panacea, but the good news is we successfully lobbied for $500 million to be added to the Inflation Reduction Act. So that's, that's a 10-year time period that the Park Service can use $500 million for personnel in parks. And that was a huge achievement uh, for the Park Service um, in, in the Inflation Reduction Act. And I've spoken with uh, the Interior Department and the Park Service about how what's the best, highest use of that money. And I think we generally all agree that getting more expertise into the park service is going to be a really important part of utilizing that money. So instead of um, hiring more seasonals, looking to hire more scientists, more planners, more historians, people who can really help um, improve the condition of the resources in the parks and, and plan better for the future. So that money, while it's not gonna fix everything in the parks, Kurt, um, it will give the Park Service a shot in the arm, which we were hoping for um, through that funding. And I have to say, with all of the things, like you mentioned before, the Climate Corps being cut out of that bill, it was really nice that that Park Service money stayed in, or the personnel money. Getting more expertise into the parks is going to be 
really important in terms of planning on visitation. And what, uh, you know, and, and Mike may know this better than, better than me, but I've been doing this work for almost 25 years. And I remember congressional hearings on carrying capacity. And pretty much 20 years ago, this concept died of what if we looked at the parks and actually tried to figure out how many is too many um, visitors. And the Park Service really hasn't done this work in depth in 20 years. And what we're starting to see now are things like Acadia's congestion mitigation plan, right? Where, where um, they really worked on traffic issues. And the result of that was the reservation system at Cadillac Mountain, among other things that they're doing. But what Arches needs is a visitor use management plan. They need to look at the entire park, its very small road system, its parking lots, and figure out how we're gonna move visitors around that park and not destroy these wonderful resources. And so my, from my conversation out there, you know, a week and a half ago, is that they are doing this in-depth look. They are going to look at each trail and they're going to try to figure out how to manage for the current visitation and then potentially future visitation. But I think the reality is that we need more parks to actually do visitor use planning and not get, you know, guess at what the future is. And in places like Zion, it's just bursting. I think we all know that the Narrows has become unpleasant most of the time uh, for folks who are there. I mean, there's just too many people in that canyon. And so there will have to be some actual management of these places. Personally, you know, when people keep coming back to me and telling me that they got their ticket for Angel's Landing, I have never climbed up Angel's Landing with a ton of people there. That would scare me. So it it actually frightens me a little bit that even the ticketed entry, that's too many people probably. And so I do think we have to give the Park Service staff some room to do this planning, but we also need to get them the funding to do it. And, and in some cases, and this is what I was talking about in Arches, is all those staff people who are in parking lots directing traffic right now, how do we get them to stop directing traffic and actually doing interpretive programs again? And so some of it is more staff, but also some of it is we have to fix these problems so the staff can actually do what the park superintendent needs them to do and not just become traffic cops. Mike, you know, your your last posting before you retired was at um, Cape Hatteras National Seashore, and, and you well know that uh, visitation there has continued to go up and up and up and up and up. And I'm going to kind of bring this full circle. You know, we were talking about the air tour management plans and um, at Glacier, they point out that a lot of people were saying that the, the buzzing of planes and the, the whirly birds overhead adversely impacted their visitor experience. Should the National Park Service be looking at these crowded places as impacting the visitor experience and work towards a solution as, as Kristen was suggesting? Simple answer is yes. <laughs> All right. It's a complicated issue. So in my mind, your question is either a complicated question with a simple answer. Yes, the Park Service should do carrying capacity. It's required by law. Kristen, I forget the name of the law, 1978, if I remember correctly. Right. That's They've right been required to do it since then. Most parks have not done it. 
And, and so having it would be like the Super Bowl selling as many tickets as people will buy without guaranteeing you a seat. That's what it boils down to. You know, most venues, concert event, sporting venues have a limited number of seats and they don't sell any more tickets than that. Well, parks don't operate that way, but it's much more complicated to figure out what the capacity is. In my mind, that still doesn't excuse parks and the park service from not doing it. They need to try to do it. But it gets really complicated in that every park is left to their own devices. There have been some, I think, smart superintendents that have realized that they can make congestion seem less through transportation systems, Cadia, Zion, et cetera, et cetera. In my mind, all they've done is facilitate getting more people in. So I was at Angel's Landing a couple of years ago in July, only time I could be there. The climate with my family, we got there really early in the morning, catch the bus from headquarters into the trailhead and the bus was full and every shuttle that comes after it's full. And so they did an incredible job getting people to the trailhead. And then you hike up the trail and up at the top where you reach the cables on the slabs. That was like a bottleneck that tons of people could only go one at a time through. So it was scary. It was frightening. It was particularly people trying to climb down where you're trying to climb up. And if one person had slipped and fall, they would have knocked two or three. So in a way, it was inevitable the park was going to have to go to timed entry there. But it doesn't really resolve or address the visitor experience issue. I think, you know, ultimately, parks need a sound basis and need to go through a planning process to limit visitation during peak use periods at extremely popular locations. And that's, you know, that's not necessarily going to be a popular thing, but they can't make the park any bigger. They can't cram any more people in there and have it be safe or enjoyable. So, you know, it's one of those things they can't look away from any longer. And, you know, it's when it becomes a crisis or such a problem that they can't ignore it. I mean, I remember talking about visitor use management for arches when I was at Yellowstone in the 90s. So it's something they've been thinking about and talking about. I'm not sure they've successfully figured it out. The last thing I would say is other limitations come into play. I had a good meeting um, with the superintendent of Acadia this summer. He has the staffing to manage timed entry to Cadillac Mountain. He didn't have the housing for him. Or sorry, he has the money for the staffing. So sometimes money's not the limiting factor. Other things like housing or being able to hire people for, you know, who would have to commute an hour to get there. So again, I think the easy answer is always more money, more staffing can solve or at least help with a lot of these things, but it's much more complicated than that. Can, can either of you um, point to some parks that are taking on this uh, this issue head on? Yeah, I, I mean, I thought Carlsbad Caverns was really great. They implemented a visitor use plan in 2020, and um, I reaped the benefits of it this past week, where they limit the cavern to, I think, 300 people a day. It was really nice. You got around. I actually circled it twice. And it was really wonderful. And I didn't feel like I was scooching by people every five seconds. I got to take all my pictures. And so 
I do think there are places that are trying to figure out what is that sweet spot where everyone can have a really great experience and spend as much time as they'd like in a particular spot in a park. And I, I thought they did a, a really great job. But, um, you know, I think it's a challenge in so many places right now, Kurt. I really do. We have to invest more in it. And, um, and being at Guadalupe Mountains, which is a pretty remote park that not everyone gets to, what was uh, really great to hear from the superintendent out there is that they're getting ahead of visitor use management. They can already see some of the trails getting very busy in some of the parking lots. So um, the superintendent out there is gonna start doing a visitor use management plan now to get out ahead of what he sees coming, which is the exact spot where we want a lot of parks to be in, that the park service itself is gonna make more funds available to do this planning before things get busier. So, so that's, that's the hope. Yeah, Mike, I guess Acadia has kind of halfway there. They're, they're managing the crowds on, on Cadillac Mountain, but, but the rest of the park? I can point to a few parks that are trying really hard and have some successes. It's usually with like one spot or another. Um, so visited Acadia, uh, went up Cadillac Mountain with the timed entry, you know, anecdotally talked to a few folks up there who didn't mind that, you know, it was August. Most people know how to use their cell phones and internet and websites and those kinds of things. So it seemed like a number of visitors could navigate that kind of constraint before the call today I happened to be uh, at, at an appointment. And while I was waiting to check out, woman in line in front of me was complaining about timed entry on Cadillac Mountain <laughs> because, you know, she remembered back in the day, you just went up whenever you felt like it and nobody was there and you had the whole place to yourself. So, you know, there's always going to be those kinds of perspectives of people remembering the good old days, but times change. It's, it's a lot more. You got to get up at sunrise. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or go in November or whatever. But. Yeah, that's what my daughter and I did is I woke her up very early, got her a bagel in Bar Harbor and drove up Cadillac Mountain for sunrise. And, you know, those are the tricks that you need to learn if it really annoys you. I guess, I guess. You know, Mike, before we, we close today, there was one other topic I wanted to, to bounce off you because you were the superintendent at Cape Hatteras National Seashore. This year has been a poster child of sorts for the National Seashore with sea level rise and the impact of more potent hurricanes. And we're seeing houses falling into the, the Atlantic Ocean. We're seeing the, the Atlantic Ocean level go higher on the Outer Banks of North Carolina that some of the houses that once upon a time might have been 200 feet away from the, the water's edge and might have been outside the National Seashore are now inside the National Seashore. And we're seeing septic tanks busted open and raw sewage, I guess, you know, running into the, the national seashore now. Is there anything the Park Service can do about that, aside from watch these places fall down and warn people not to walk up there? It's a very challenging issue. Uh, part of it is the villages on Hatteras and Ocracoke are outside the boundary of the seashore. Uh, the boundary of the seashore is the mean high water mark. So as the beach erodes further into the island, which is the nature of barrier islands in the first place, you know, big storms will cause, normally cause overwash. 
and kind of deposit sand on the higher points of the island, but kind of move the island inland or to the west. And then during periods of low storm frequency, coastal sand will just deposit on the beach and make the beach bigger and wider. Um, but as these storms happen and erode the beach, the park boundary becomes, <laughs> comes into the village, you know, the mean high water mark. So it, it's a very challenging thing. Um, the Outer Banks traditionally, and not just the seashore, but the Outer Banks have not had centralized wastewater treatment. You know, it's a big sand deposit and they rely on septic systems. So that's, a, that's an issue. Every, every house has a septic system, including the ones right next to the water. From what I've read that Superintendent Halleck is trying to do down there, it, it makes sense to me. It needs to be collaboration with Dare County officials. Um, you know, they need to transition to some kind of better setback, particularly with septic systems from the shoreline if they allow redevelopment. Uh, it's a challenge. Property owners may not have the kind of insurance that would let them proactively remove their septic system before it's damaged by a storm. So it's an extremely challenging thing. I don't know that there's a simple solution, but you know, just what I read about the collaborative efforts, I think makes sense. But unfortunately, it's probably gonna require a lot of this kind of publicity about houses falling into the ocean for there to be any meaningful changes in the zoning requirements and those kinds of things. I think Mike said it beautifully. I uh, completely agree with what he said. And it's very, very hard, you know, when you have the overlapping uh, land pattern and, and you have to, you know, work with people with different interests on changing a way of life almost and getting people to sort of realize that it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get any better. And so uh, Dave Halleck is a great superintendent and really thinking through the problem and, and trying to get folks on board, but it's going to be tough because that's a, that's a rough place. I mean, um, the Wright brothers went there because it was really, really windy and it was going to launch planes. And like Mike Murray was just saying, you know, this is a place of great dynamic weather and, um, and it's getting worse and, and folks are going to have to come to grips with that. And um one of the things that we're dealing with right now, Kurt, is that the White House didn't put the Park Service on the list of agencies that needed funding uh, for disaster relief from the spring and summer. And they didn't. So, no, the Park Service did not make the list for, um, it's called the anomalies list for the appropriations process. And the Park Service so far is not in line to get disaster money to pay for the Yellowstone flood the road in Denali is sort of semi-paid for, but we've had all of these sort of climate-oriented disasters happen over this spring and summer that were really in the public's eye. Uh, Lake Mead drought. Um, Mojave really National Preserve. Um, and so it's, it's going to be a necessary thing by the end of this year for the White House and for Congress to support some level of disaster funding for the Park Service. And you would think with all of the really obvious media that that um, happened over the summer that there would be more emphasis on it. But we we actually did a poll. Our, um, I'm the executive director of the National Parks Action Fund, and we did a poll in Arizona, a statewide poll, and asked people about climate change. 
and the climate change effects at the at Lake Mead, the concerns about them ranked higher than those at the Grand Canyon. So the drought at Lake Mead got higher numbers of concern from Arizona voters than the drought conditions at the Grand Canyon. So people are getting it. People see these problems and these disasters and potential disasters in national parks. And we really need to make sure that the Park Service gets on this list by the end of the year and get some additional funding because this is not going to end anytime soon. So that's what we're going to be focused on for the next two months, among other things, is, is trying to get some additional funding. But like Mike said before, and I totally agree with, is we just keep throwing money at these problems instead of you know looking for, for bigger and better solutions. So, But um, in the meantime, we know the public supports uh, taking care of these places when something terrible occurs. So we, we hope we hope there will be some room for disaster funding for the parks. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch and, and see what comes out of that. Well, Mike and Kristen, it's been a, a pleasure having you guys on the podcast this week. And uh, I look forward to, to catching up down the road. But again, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. that's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. In late December, we'll have Mike and Kristen back to discuss the past year in the national park system and look at some of the successes that have occurred and some of the issues that remain. Finally, to ensure that our weekly podcasts continue to find you, we hope you'll make a donation to the National Parks Traveler. Now through the end of the year, we're holding our biggest fundraiser and the revenues go to pay the bills as we cover national parks and protected areas to keep you informed. You can donate on the Traveler website, nationalparkstraveler.org, or mail your donation to National Parks Traveler, Post Office Box 980452, Park City, Utah, 84098. The Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit news organization. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.